Facing Race is coming to North Carolina in November of 2020. Are you ready for the largest multiracial, intergenerational conference of organizers, creatives, and movement makers? Facing Race is a unique collaborative space for racial justice that you can bring to life by becoming a sponsor. You'll help us to present over 90 breakout sessions, host two dynamic keynote presentations, fund the Race Flicks Film Festival, showcase local art, and provide childcare for our attendees and much more. Receive perks such as full registration, vending opportunities, prominent logo and ad placements across all our platforms. Ready to help us make history? Contact us today to secure your sponsorship for Facing Race 2020. I'm Heba Elias. And I'm Siobhan Drew. And welcome to Momentum, a Race Forward podcast where we explore how racial justice work is showing up everywhere around us. Siobhan. Hi, Eva. What's up? I don't know. I'm looking for candy this time, and I don't see any in the studio. There's no candy in the studio, but we have a special guest here. Ow. We have Cassandra. Hi. Hi, Cassandra. Hi. How are you? Good. How are y'all doing? Very well. Can you let the audience know your full name? Because I don't want to butcher it. Yeah, you sure. <laughs> okay? So I am Cassandra Frederick. I'm the managing director of policy advocacy and campaigns at Drug Policy Alliance. Drug Policy Alliance is a national organization that works to end the criminalization associated with drug use and drug prohibition. So definitely not the feds. Definitely not the feds. <laughs> Opposite. Already. Let's get right into it. We have a couple questions for you. I'm sure. Well, first, I want people to know like your background and how you got into this work. So maybe elaborate a little bit on what gives you the fuel to come in every day and do the work that you do. Well, so interesting to ask this question because I've definitely been on vacation. So I'm like <laughs> trying to find the fuel. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's hard to bounce back after vacation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went to uh, social work school um, here in New York City and Drug Policy Alliance actually happened to be my internship. Wow. And I've been blessed to go from intern to full-time staff. And so that's been really interesting. But I mean, for the most part, I have always been really interested in criminal justice um, reform and a birth, you know, a young prison abolitionist and trying to figure out different ways to reduce the ways that, you know, the government and carceral actors have their foots on our necks. Mm. Um, I see drugs as a great vehicle and praxis mm. to talk about the different ways that systems have interjected in our lives and really um, try to control us. And so as a, you know, black person, a black woman from New York City and like, child of immigrants from Haiti. I feel like Hello? this conversation around drugs and criminal justice and politics is kind of like bred into the way that I've like been reared in the space. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's been really exciting. And I think for me, the conversation around drugs and the way that it's um, regulation has intervened in our lives in this like deleterious way um, is one that is continues to be um interesting because there's such a level of urgency in the different like insidious ways that the drug war is entering into our lives and the ways that people don't see it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think if we're having a conversation about what it means to end the drug war, um, it's going to take a long time for, for us to do the kind of public mass public education that we need for people to actually understand mm -hmm. 
how their thoughts around drugs are based on propaganda. Mm-hmm. That was deep. I need a second to process. Actually, yeah. Let that land. <laughs> let, let, that, let that sit for a little bit. All right. You want to go? Yes. <laughs> so speaking of which, I know when you say that a lot of our thoughts around drugs can be based on propaganda. I say colonization. Mm-hmm. Um I think there was something that Heba was thinking about earlier, like a really burning question that you mm-hmm. had, Heba, around yeah. this. So I want to just pass it to you first sure. before I continue. So the terms that are currently used now, I know there's a difference. I, I know there's there's a difference, but I'm pretty sure most of our listeners don't. What is the difference between the use of cannabis <laughs> and marijuana? Mm-hmm. Let the people know. Give us the 411. Inform us on what term we should actually be using, when we should be using it, and why should we should be using it. So this is a complicated conversation because I actually have an opinion that's different than a large um, group of the movement. This is a really interesting question, and I get it often because um, there are people that are using the conversation about when we use cannabis and when we use marijuana as a way to show how woke they are. Mm-hmm. So, like I said before, you know, cannabis is the whole plant. Marijuana is a portion of the plant, um, but is also the part of the plant that people use the most to get high or have an experience. Cannabis is the word that most people use around the world. And it was the word that we used. However, when we were moving towards prohibition of cannabis, part of the strategies that the government used to push forward prohibition is by using racism and xenophobia. And just like all our drug laws, when we prohibited a drug it was usually connected to a group of people we didn't like or we were trying to control and so for marijuana the the groups of people that we were trying to control were in the southwest were mexicans and um jazz musicians in harlem and there's actually a film that fab five freddy um put together called grass is greener that really lays out the history of the way that race shaped marijuana prohibition But going back to this, the word marijuana is the word that folks in the Southwest were using. So Mexicans were using that word. And that word, it was the Spanish word, right? And so they used it as a way to scare white people. Like, this marijuana is coming and it's, Mm. you know, making Mexicans and black people think they can sleep with white women and making them violent and all these different things. And so they took, they stopped using the word cannabis and they used the word that Mexicans were using, which was marijuana, as a way to make it scary. Right? And as a way to color the plant. Mm. And... So now, you know, as we are moving to a place where people are trying to destigmatize it, there is a movement within the cannabis um, advocacy space to stop using the word marijuana and use the word cannabis. And the argument is marijuana is a racist word, which I disagree with. Mm -hmm. I believe that it's not a racist, like white people didn't make the words, right? Speak. Like, um, Mexicans use that. That is their word. White people reacted to that and used it as a way to stigmatize, criminalize people. But that word itself is not racist. And I find that people like to use the word cannabis more as a way of whitewashing the conversation and having us have a conversation about let's, you know, turn this into a business let's make it legitimate um and trying to you know get away from the criminalization and it's like well you actually can't get 
to the regulation if you don't actually deal with the criminalization. And so for me, I I use the words interchangeably, um, but I will not, I will not stop using the word marijuana. And oftentimes it tends to be white folks that try to call me out on it. And I'm like, were you at the police reform rally? Right. Because there's only been one person working on marijuana arrest decriminalization in this city that went from 50,000 to under 10,000. That would, you weren't at that meeting. So So unless you were in the gym, Oh, you you're not shooting with you're me. Not shooting with Can me. we actually talk about that? Because I had another follow-up question. To Thank you for clarifying. Um, but there are a lot of people I respect that do not use the word marijuana and they use cannabis and they're of color and they do the work. I just use it interchangeably because I think it's important, especially in this moment where capitalism is one of the driving forces around mm-hmm. legalization, that mm-hmm. we don't actually lose the conversation of race and that mm-hmm. we actually have a conversation about why marijuana was made illegal in the first place and that was to kill black and brown bodies. Let's talk about and it. we are not going to push advocacy that doesn't center that um and so that's why i continue to use marijuana because then i can continue to center the stigmatization that has been pushed on people of color thank you I need, to pro- I need to process with that. Listen, man. These answers are landing. Like, Heba is just, she was I need snapping. To process. I, listen, she was she agreeing in all types of ways that a black person could possibly agree. Listen, man. I wanted to touch base on the, the, the campaign that you just referenced. Um, so. I'll let you I'll let you speak on it, but it was a it was a statewide campaign to end New York City's racially biased marijuana arrests. Mm -hmm. And that actually cut the number of NYC marijuana arrests in half. Actually more now. More. So can you I guess my question is, what was key in that campaign to actually have that success? It was about race, period. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as someone who has been working on that campaign for a decade um, working with people like Gabriel Saya, who's now at the Katal Center for Health Equity and Justice and Vocal New York, we worked with um, researchers, Deborah Peterson Small, Lauren Siegel, um, Harry Levine, to look at marijuana arrests and see what was happening. And we saw that it was happening in certain neighborhoods. And we also knew that government data showed that people, regardless of race, were using at the same rates. But it was young people of color that were getting arrested. And if you look at the usage rates, young white people in that same bracket bracket actually use and possess at higher rates, but they weren't getting arrested. It was like, and as someone who is actually from the Upper West Side, yes, there are black people that live on the Upper West Side. I, I was looking like, how is it that the kids at Dwight, which is a private school that they be smoking right on Central Park are never getting on arrested the on the street. And the, the young people on front of the state building on 125th are like, there's like a paddy wagon just taking all the kids, Back and right? Forth. And so we looked at that and I think we created a campaign that really focused on three things. The, the constitutionality of the stops that were happening. They were unconstitutional. They were illegally being searched. Mm. The costliness of the arrest. Mm. And then the racist nature of it. And I think this is different from other campaigns that have tried to have conversations around marijuana cannabis advocacy, which were really about the plant. Like, this is just a plant. Like, we shouldn't do this. And oftentimes people veered away from the conversation of race and we centered it. And so you're having a conversation. If you look at the decline in marijuana arrests, that's also happening at the same time that we're having a conversation about policing. Mm -hmm. So Drug Policy Alliance was a part of community, is a part of Communities United for Police Reform that took on stop and frisk in the city. And that's different because 
we recognize how can we use marijuana as a platform to talk about broader issues. And that is the difference mm-hmm. between doing drug policy for, as a race issue, because then you get to the structural issues as to why drugs are being used in that way. Because it's not it, like if it wasn't drugs, it would be something else to criminalize our folks. Right. So if we just fix drug policy and don't actually deal with policing, that actually doesn't help the same people that are being targeted. Um, and so that's how you get to a place where we were having like 50,000 arrests in one year to a place where, you know, I think a few weeks ago in September, you know, there were like thousands of people that were getting arrested in New York City every week. And September, we looked and it was like 1,100 people that got arrested in the first six months of the year. Mm-hmm. And like that happens because of the work that we did around policing and making it squarely about um, the ways that communities are targeted, because what we realize is that this campaign is about marijuana and it's not about marijuana at all. Mm. Right. Right. Um, actually, Ooh. I think I might. <laughs> I have a follow up <laughs> to that. When you say that we are working on reform and policy, there are folks that say that reform isn't enough. And they say they really want to see the entire dismantling of policing as it exists in the U.S. period and a revisioning, a new vision for a world without police, period, mm-hmm. um, which can be hard. Again, we talked about what does it mean to f- be colonized and have come from that and think about a future without some of what you're so accustomed to mm-hmm. and have grown accustomed to, even if it's harmful to your people. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me, and Heba, more about what the difference is between the folks who talk about reform and the folks who are wanting to talk about dismantling everything. Like you said, you come from an abolitionist background. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about those three terms? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I think that as someone who's working at Drug Policy Alliance, I think right now in our moving movement, we're having conversations about what is the role of police with drugs. Mm. And for us, for for me, for Cassandra, I don't believe there is there should be a role for law enforcement with drugs. I don't like I just think that drugs is something that should be outside of the carceral system altogether. Mm. And I see drug policy as a way for us to reimagine ways for us to build community capacity to deal with behaviors that may be problematic or harmful. Mm. So as someone who does work in this space, I think for me, it's like, how do we have conversations about how do we shift resources um, from law enforcement to other institutions or other community structures for us to deal with people that are struggling with drugs right now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for us to figure out what are alternatives for people that are selling drugs right now and hard- and hurting other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is a, uh, that is like one camp, right? And then there are other people in our reform movement that believe that law enforcement are the key, right? Like we should get give law enforcement, we should train them for them to figure out how they should deal with people who use drugs and like they should have naloxone. And so very, it's a very contentious issue in our, our discipline because people are struggling. And I think that I think all of the conversation pieces are important, but I I think it's important for people to remember what police are, what their what their purpose is, right? And what is that? For me, it's the capturing of people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I that's think that's what I saw in Bedstock. Yeah, and so and I crying. think there's I, see that in there's, Island I think day. that's a conversation about. I think there's a larger conversation about what public safety means, mm-hmm. who is the public, and what is safety. And then what is public safety? Hmm. And I think when it comes to drugs, 
for me, the conversation is like the public are the people in community. My main community right now are the people that are in chaotic use and that are struggling, right? Like that is like, how do I keep this group of people safe? Yes. Not at the expense of other people, but how do I keep this group of people safe? How do I keep them alive? How do I get them into resources? How do I affirm their dignity and autonomy? Mm-hmm. And then how do we create the infrastructure in communities to be responsive to that group of people Mm. and that doesn't mean that i think people should be shooting up in the street or like selling in the street Mm -hmm. it just means that i don't think that we should have a big tower to throw people in there and you don't see them again or or driving people to alleyways where people are dying in bathrooms Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so i think the conversation around policing is is it's also just recognizing that there are more carceral actors than police it's like the social workers. It's like the tenant associations. It's the guy at the bodega that calls the cops. So for me, the conversation around reform and abolition and what we do in drug policy is one that's still really dynamic and nuanced mm. and also has to be realistic to the moment that we're in. Because mm-hmm. honestly, a lot of our communities aren't ready to deal mm-hmm. with people that are struggling with chaotic use and problematic Speak. use. Right? These terms, I would love to, to get... Um, a clear definition for our listeners when you say carceral actors carceral can you tell us really briefly the definition of carceral for me when i say carceral actors i'm talking about people that are part of like the prison industrial complex um so um people or entities that play a surveillance role Mm -hmm. so if i'm a homeowner and i have ring a surveillance kind of doorbell camera connected to Amazon perhaps or connected to police and Amazon and, and that's Amazon the, gives the that, stuff to the mm, FBI that's a carceral mm, actor in I front was, of my home I, that? I've never been asked that question but I think you are definitely playing a carceral role if you are providing information to Amazon which then deports people or then gives it to the FBI and yes. then they're able to round them up Okay, and so I think those are the kinds of questions that we have to ask ourselves about what are we adding to to this and what are we providing to because the thing is we are actually giving a lot of capacity yes. to the carceral system and that data. a lot of people aren't even paying attention to um and and then still saying black lives matter right <laughs> right yes i don't have ring yes but it, i've seen it and i think it has facial recognition too so i actually yeah. was well i think that's a big conversation around like data and privacy and mm-hmm. technology and like mm-hmm. our friends at like color of change and ACLU are doing a lot of work on like privacy and facial recognition. That's not the work that I do, but like I can see how that continues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when I, oftentimes I use the word carceral actors because I think people focus solely on the police and there are a lot of people that provide um, that kind of uh, capacity to surveilling and hurting our people like, Social workers, teachers, um, that person who always calling the cops because they moved to a new neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like you're kind of Gentrifies, delivering people yes. on was, a silver platter. <laughs> I was just going to say you're it. opening the door, right? Yeah. You used another term, which was chaotic um, users. And um, one thing I hear from folks who of all different races who aren't ready for a conversation about decriminalization of drug use or uh, selling or all of it uh, is that what are we supposed to do? Just open all of the prisons and let everyone out into the street. And the fear that I hear when folks say that is this question mark about how do you work with people who are using drugs in a way that can harm others and themselves? Um, when you talk about a chaotic user, can you tell the listeners? Cause I, I like 
to yeah, yeah. understand so the definition. So I think one of the things that I think is important for people to know is that most people that use drugs don't end up having a problem. Like they use drugs and they go about their day, they go to work, they raise totally their functioning. kids, totally functioning. And sometimes I try not to even use the word, I'm starting to try to use a different language than functional. Okay. Because I think it's just like they're just living their lives. Like okay. it's a part of their lives in a way. As just a, like nothing's wrong with them. Nothing's so wrong with the them. Like, functioning. Yeah, it's like, oh, like it, they're a little special. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so Noted. for me, and I'm this, this is like three months in. Okay. So mm-hmm. it's not anything. So for me, I'm, it's like most, if you look at studies, it says 80 to 90% of people who use drugs do so without a problem. Mm. Problem to me is like you can't go to work, you're not paying your taxes. Well, no, well, taxes. Um, you're, you're going to work. You're taking care of your kids. Like you're keeping routine. You're not like big life things aren't being disrupted. I feel like I've seen some of that conversation from I think it's a Dr. Carl Hart on yeah. Twitter who engages people pretty actively around this idea and this study of uh, folks who've been using drugs, even ones that were super, super like this is the most terrifying drug yeah. in terms of the campaigns around the drugs that like actually the average user uses that drug and then goes about their day but when they get criminalized is when or when it intersects with poverty and and the need to be able to use but no money everyone knows that people on wall street are using cocaine everybody (laughs) everybody knows that that. we're going there everybody everybody knows that all listen i went to two ivy league schools columbia and cornell Everybody knows those (laughs) frat and sorority are full Mm -hmm. of, they're like literal pharmacies. And so, um, and they are now, you know, the CEOs or CFOs Mm. of Fortune 500 companies and Mm. they're living their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that's not, you know, that's not necessarily saying that's that's the idea. You don't have to aspire to it. But but. it's like folks are so focused on the Frederick Douglass projects or housing development and not focused at Columbia at all. And I'm not saying that we need to bring that focus to Columbia, but it's like, how do we create the resources for people to still thrive? Mm hmm. And so when I'm talking about chaotic use, when we're talking about decriminalization of drugs, I don't think we have the infrastructure right now. Our communities can't hold the amount of pain and trauma, but is but that doesn't give us an excuse that we have to hold it in a prison or a jail. Wow. Speak. That means we have to actively be investing in figuring out what the alternative is. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the hard conversation. And I think we as you know, often people say, like, how do you deal with people who use drugs? You ask them. Right. Most of them know what they need. They'll tell you, like, yo, like, I'm using drugs, blah, blah. But my biggest problem right now is that I have this abscess on my arm and I can't go to the hospital because they judge me. Mm-hmm. So why not give them primary care? Mm-hmm. Why not give them housing? Why not do re- reunification stuff with them and their family? Like, there are things that happen that if you stabilize people with the presenting the problem that they present to you, not the problem that you think they're presenting mm. with, because that is the key. The thing about drug policy that I believe wholeheartedly is this idea of dignity and autonomy. And that's why I think it's so important for black folks, Latinx folks, Asian folks, people of color to have that conversation about autonomy and dignity, because I don't think we have fully embraced that idea, mm. even for ourselves. That there can be dignity in the way you use what you use to manage the trauma that, that you there can manage be dignity in whatever the chronic behavior. pain or whatever. Right. Like not even about drugs. Not like even. like how do we practice freedom and mm-hmm. liberation? Mm-hmm. Because we regulate 
the hell out of each other other. a lot, Mm -hmm. right? With stigma and judgment. And this is not to like um, reprimand us in front of white folks. This is for us to actually, how do we create Mm -hmm. the space for Mm -hmm. for us to actually have the conversation about what should autonomy look like? What does dignity actually look Mm -hmm. like? Because we're not, you know, as someone who um, is a cis black woman, like I don't think even in the conversation of, people that identify as women we even within throughout that full spectrum we have deregulated amongst ourselves what it means to have an autonomy and dignity around our gender Mm. so if we haven't done that then how do we have a conversation about the mom that is struggling with drug use who's pregnant Mm -hmm. right right yeah right um, <laughs> while we're on this topic of language, um, so what you're bringing up for me is a conversation I had recently uh, with a coworker, actually, about the the word that some of us use for people who use a particular drug, right? And it's a colloquial word that we use. Um, I'm not sure the exact origin of it, but when people say the word, well, when people say the word crackhead, for mm-hmm. example, right? And I see you close your eyes and you have what looks to be a visceral reaction to that word, right? So many of us have people we care about who have used, uh, struggled, uh, uh, who have caused harm, experienced Mm -hmm. harm, uh, who have been close to us. And this is the word that folks have used about themselves, Mm -hmm. amongst themselves, Mm -hmm. to each other, to sometimes... um, actually lighten the discussion about something that's actually really heavy Mm -hmm. Um, because it still is, as you said, like this is friends, this is family, uh, this is life. And we had this discussion about it. Like, where do we go with this word? And I feel like you're the person to ask today that could maybe give me an idea of like briefly where this word come from. Uh, How did we find so many of us using this word in a way that almost the way people say they reclaim other Mm-hmm. Words that are not beautiful words, but they reclaim it in a way to talk to each other in a way that has more lightness to it around pain. Can you tell me, do you have thoughts on the word and any info about the origin of mm. its colloquial use? So I I will say that I am a person. I'm definitely not the person. Um, again, I I'm like, I think these conversations, I can think of like 50 different organizations Um, that could have this conversation. And I actually um, really encourage y'all to follow up with some of these organizations to have this conversation um, in a different way. Um, I do not use the word crackhead. I actually correct people when I talk to them in the street about using that term. Um, I can't tell you like the origin of like who used it first, but it's very clear that it was used as a way to be um, a degrading, derogatory, stigmatizing word um, in the 80s um, for us. And I think one thing that was clear was because of the prevalence of crack within our like mainstream culture and the fear mongering around it, it was um, I think it's definitely a term of pain and trauma. And it is, uh, it's super loaded. And I think oftentimes as black people, we are constantly figuring out strategies and harm reduction about ways to reduce the harm. And I really struggle with people that 
the role that comedians have played in lightening it. I was just thinking about the comedy world. The comedy world uses it. It's an instant punchline. Mm-hmm. And I think it has done a lot of harm to um, detach people from what we're seeing. Right. So it's like oftentimes people like crackhead and like, you know, Dave Chappelle had that character in his show mm-hmm. and people are laughing, but that's like literally someone's aunt or mom. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And it's like, we made it okay to make people punching bags. And I think that's why I said, I think we have to have a conversation together in a room around our autonomy and our dignity, because I think we stripped dignity from a lot of our own folks with the prevalence of this language and the prevalence is is really hard and so it's like we need to make a decision as a community and it's not because i want to police or regulate our behavior and the way that we make uh, how we move through trauma and when they tell me how loaded that term is and what that sounds like for them it's no go for me right and because people are more than what they use Right. And so like, I don't use crackhead. I don't use junkie. I, I actually don't use weed head or stoner. Like I'm just like a person who you use crack, you use cocaine. I don't use cokehead. But there, for me about crackhead, there is something that it's okay for us to use those terms. It's okay for the people who use crack for me are, I think some of the most stigmatized because you don't see people making jokes about people who use heroin. Hello. We don't even make those jokes and we used heroin. Right. We don't make jokes about that, but we made jokes about crack. And I think we have to have an internal reckoning with ourselves about why is that? What is left there? What is the healing that still needs to happen? And what does accountability look like? And how we work with each other to reclaim our humanity, because that is what is at stake right now. And um, language is an organizing tool. It is some, sure. it is literally the most effective tool. I'm glad you said that because it, for me, is helping to underscore and validate why I asked you so many questions. You know what I mean? Clarity so thank y'all for giving me, you know, the mm-hmm. opportunity to ask about all the language you were using. Yeah. And thanks for being so, you know, forthcoming and open and honest with your answer. Yeah. And that definitely, I think, is a, something that we can continue with um, in terms of like we can have these conversations in our communities, like smaller yeah. groups and so forth. I know um, Heba had some questions about resources. And- yeah, sure did. So, I mean, I think um, Drug Policy Alliance is a great resource. Um, to like look into things. We have a trove of information about language, about different issues. We have videos around history. Um, we You can also follow us on social media, Drug Policy Org, um, on Twitter, Drug Policy Alliance, on Facebook. We also have a Drug Policy Alliance on Instagram that we're trying to beef up. I would also say that we are some of the experts. We're not all of the experts. I would encourage people to look out for a drug user union. So basically organizations that are made up of people who use drugs, um, who are pushing for their own advocacy. Um, So groups like Vocal New York, groups like the South San Francisco Drug Users Union, Mm -hmm. um, the North American Drug Users Union, they are like having real conversations. Um, And I say that because I think drug user unions are going to be the pointy end of the spear to taking down this beast. there are a lot of people that are active in the space. And so there are people in recovery. There are a lot of recovery organizations. And I really respect their leadership and their work. 
And I also think that we should be taking the leadership of the people that are still using drugs right now. Amen. That makes sense. The most affected and the people who know best. Yeah. yeah. Right. Agreed. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Cassandra. Thank We've learned you. a lot. I know so I learned much. a lot. You took us to church a few times. <laughs> yes. Um, where can people follow you or keep up, up you know? Or do you uh, want folks to follow you? Yeah, that's, or yeah, that's drug actually a better question. Do you, want people, do you want the people to follow you? <laughs> I, don't, um, I do have a work account, which is Cassandra um, underscore Fred um, at Twitter. I really hope that's what it is. Um, and uh, people can follow me there. And you can find me on Facebook as well, Cassandra Frederic. And I mean, I just really encourage folks to look out for in different conversations. I really hope Race Forward continues to have conversations about drugs and race. Um, we could really use more people and more organizations working on racial equity um, to work on the issue of drugs because, you know, we're holding um, a lot mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. and we could use people that work specifically on this to make sure that our work is as responsive and as informed and as accountable as it needs to be. Well, this is a start. I can say that. Awesome. Yes. So hopefully this is go going to be an ongoing um, connection. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can build off of this here. So thank you, Cassandra. Thank, thank you for joining you. us. Thank so you. Much. Siobhan, it's been real. It always is. I appreciate you, sister. Do you? Because I do. sometimes it's too real and... You know, you be getting me all wound up. I mean, but that's when I get the best responses from you, you know, uh, when I have you in your field. Well, then you need to have an herbal tea if we're going to sit here and talk <laughs> about anti-blackness within our own communities and other people of color. I will have some black tea for you the next time we have, we are here convening with one another. That's caffeinated. That's going to hype me up worse. <laughs> you get some peppermint tea. That's what you make us drink. I got you. All right. It's been real. Where can we tell our audience to listen to oh, us? Yes. So you can go to uh, raceforward.org. Visit us at raceforward.org. The podcast link is right there. Um, you can stream the podcast from our webpage. You can also uh, go to Apple. You can go Apple to... Apple Podcasts. Yes. And Spotify. Thank you. Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also... Um, Subscribe to our newsletter. I feel like you should be doing this, right? Because I'm just ums. <laughs> oh, okay. Subscribe to our newsletter. Yes, via raceforward.org. Uh, yes, the newsletter that went out recently had a link to some podcast 101 information for mm -hmm. folks who are new to listening to podcasts. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll include that a second time this coming month. Yes. Um, just to give folks a sense of like, how do you listen? What does it mean to subscribe? Yes. All of that. Also, a few updates with what's going on currently with Race Forward. We are gearing up to launch our Facing Race 2020 conference. Yes. That's going to take place next year, November 12th to the 14th. November 19th will be our uh, launch date. Mm -hmm. So people can register, purchase tickets to know. Damn, you giving out the launch date? What if what if it gets pushed back by a day? Holding I, us I, to it? Listen, I have, I have hope in our coworkers that we can launch this by November 19th. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna I think that this. was an order. Get it done. We're going to do it. So, yes, please be on the lookout for that. And again, it's been a pleasure, Shimon. Yes, it has. As always. I would love to see some of our listeners at Facing Race. That would be amazing. Come show love. You might see us on stage. Who knows? Who knows? So, as we close out, let's remember keep, keep the, the momentum, momentum going toward racial justice. I put it there. You want to I know. I, I didn't log in in time to read it. <laughs>